There are some who call me Tim. Welcome, Valley of the Sun and around the world. Tim Jacobs here. Thank you so much for joining me on Life 360 with Tim Jacobs, your one-hour wob with God, your spiritual Zumba class, and as always, it is the thigh master for your soul. Don't forget it, my friends. This is the show that is redefining Christian radio here on 1280 KXEG. We are live, so give me a call, and there are so many things to talk about. This is the show that I really want you to hear that will demonstrate to you how a Christian worldview, why believing in Jesus is something that can make sense out of every aspect of your life, life from all angles, everywhere you look. The gospel of Jesus has an answer that makes sense in this world, and it can transform every life. I want to invite you to join me. Follow me on Facebook, Life360 with Tim Jacobs. Go to my page and like it. You can also send me an email if you just want to communicate with me, Tim at compasschurchaz.com. I am the lead pastor of Compass Church in the Wild West Valley in Goodyear, Arizona. And if you want to listen to any previous shows, please do that by going to timjacobslive.com. I want to tell you, if you missed the interview I had last week with Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, holy cow, you have got to go back and listen to that. That was, that that guy, he was like a run-on sentence. That guy was just, I couldn't even, and here I am, I'm, I'm this, you know, radio host here. I'm trying to, to just lead this interview, and this guy just boom, boom, boom. He had fact after fact, and he was passionate. It was just an amazing thing to just listen to this guy. Uh, very, very um, great stuff about the effect of video games on children and security and uh, how we got to be sheepdogs in our culture. There's the wolf and the sheep and the sheepdog. So you have got to go listen to that if you missed it, as well as all of the other shows that we've been doing here on 1280KXEG. But now it is time for some heavy theological reflections. Uh, Is it heavy stuff, man? (laughs) Will it blow me away? Great Scott. Heavy. Well, well, it is heavy. Now, look, if you live in Phoenix and you were at the corner of Indian School in Osborne not too long ago and you saw a guy in a white SUV flailing his arms, not flipping the bird, but flailing his arms. Yeah, uh, that was me. And, I, and I'll tell you why. And it's just this is important. OK, when when you are in the left hand turn lane, my friends, and the light turns green. And it's, it's not like an arrow thing, but it's just the typical standard red light, yellow light, green light, that combination, right? And the light turns green. You can go out into the intersection and you can wait for all of the other oncoming cars to go and then you can turn. You don't have to stay behind the white line, the white crosswalk line, you can actually go out. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because for some unknown reason that's beyond my ability to fully comprehend, people uniquely in Phoenix think that when the light turns green and you're in the left-hand turn lane, you have to stay behind the white, yellow, the white line. And I have news for you. You don't. So I, here I am, and I got one car in front of this truck in front of me, 
and the light turns green and there's like all this traffic and he's not going. And I'm thinking, dude, if you don't go, if you don't get out into the intersection, you're going to be the only one who gets to go during this particular cycle of green light. And so I'm looking at the, I'm like trying to catch his eye. I'm like flailing my arms like, dude, go, you know, you can, you can, you can get out there. You can get out beyond the little white. You can brave the, the very dangerous intersection. And I'm, I'm just like, just go, man. And it was killing me anyway. So what happened? I'll tell you what happened. The light turns yellow and the light turns red. And then he goes. And who doesn't go? Me. I don't know. Now, it's honestly, Mark, my producer Mark's here. Mark, do you go out into the intersection on the green light? Yes, I do. Okay, thank you. Because if you did not, I was going to have to just, like, we're going to have issues, you and me. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there, and I hear now he say, what does this have to do with theology? Well, honestly, not a lot. However, it does in this sense, okay? Jesus said, do unto others as you would want them to do to you. So I think to myself, okay, there's people behind me, you know, they got like groceries to this grocery store to go to. They're picking their kids up from school. Like they, we got to keep this thing moving. And so for you to sit behind the white line, you're basically just kind of hosing the people behind you. So, so, you know, when you're sitting back there and or when you're sitting behind the white line, I just want you to ask yourself, say self, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? You know what he would do? Well, them some heavy words, Paul Blunt. Hey, life is heavy. It is heavy. So what Jesus would do is he would scoot out into the intersection. He would go. Now, all I'm telling you is I think they need to make a law. And I think it needs to be illegal for you to sit there and wait. And they should get a ticket. Because if you get a ticket, you get to go to traffic school. And in traffic school, they will teach you that you can go out into the intersection. If you disagree with me, call me at 602-368-3776. And I should know because I've had seven tickets all for speeding, but none in the last seven years. So if you do the math, my friends, that means I have gotten a ticket, but I've spaced it out over. So I've got a ticket less than every two years, or is it more than, no, less. So like, you know what I mean? So the point is I've matured and you should as well. So there you go. I just want to get that off my chest because I just, I'm just real. And anyway, so just got back from Prescott, by the way, just today. And it snowed in Prescott. I'm telling you, it's beautiful. You have to understand the relationship that I have with snow is I always miss it. There was that Ray Bradbury story I read when I was a little kid. Maybe you read it as well, where like all these kids, they live on Venus and there's there's clouds every day on Venus and every seven years the sun comes out. And and so they think that the sun's going to come out pretty soon and all these kids are playing when this poor little girl gets locked in a closet and they, they just kind of play around with her. They're joking around with her and they lock her in a closet and then all of a sudden, to their surprise, the sun comes out and the clouds part for this brief period of time and they all run out and they enjoy the sun and they're running around and playing and looking at it and it's, everything gets bright. And, and, then, and then the clouds come back and then, and then they come back in and then she missed the whole thing. She missed the sun and now she has to wait seven years. That's how I feel about snow. Like I always miss it. So I go up to Prescott because I, like I said, I'm, um, 
I'm the, the, the pastor of Compass Church, so we took our staff to a little trip. We stayed at the St. Michael Hotel right there on Whiskey Road. It's just an awesome little little place. Old hotel, but very cool. And uh, so we had time just to hang out with each other. But it snowed, and it was so fun because we got to see it when it wasn't snowy. And then the snow came down, and then there's like inches of snow. And I'm telling you guys this, that those of you who live in the desert, because we don't see this very much. So we just, we couldn't even think anymore. We got so excited, and we went to Target and bought like a little um, tube for the that you get, you know, you throw in the pool. And we, we, we were up to this uh, friend of ours house, and we were sliding down the driveway, uh, the snowy driveway. And uh, that lasted like five minutes because the tube popped. So we moved to cookie sheets. So I was going down the, the somebody's drive. I didn't even know who it was, but somebody's driveway and on a cookie sheet. And it was just a kick. It was awesome. So anyway, but sometimes in life, you know what I mean? You, you have to experience things. You have to just... You got to go for it. And because life can get so busy and so mundane. And if you look outside and you see there's snowfall on the ground and you you have a cookie sheet, you just got to go down a snowy driveway sometimes. And anyway, now, my friends, I want to talk to you about a lot of things. But I guess one, I guess to start off, because everyone today has their mind on the speech that was given by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, who came in to, our, to, came to Washington and uh, gave a speech before Congress today. And if you want to talk about that, let's talk about it. 602-368-3776. What was your reaction to the speech? And as I said, I was just getting in from Prescott and I was trying to stay, trying to keep up with the news and see what's going on. And I read the the speech and and um, but but uh, I want to talk to you a f- for a few minutes about this because I just want to kind of prep it with a, a couple of thoughts. First of all, um, I I don't I can't sit here and tell you that I have an absolutely clear, totally clear understanding of how everything's going to play out prophetically in terms of the nation of Israel. I just I, I'm just going to be honest and say that I don't. I'm just not a prophetic guy. Um, there was a time in my life when I was really, really into to Bible prophecy. I believe that we should expect the return of Christ. I believe that God has plans for the nation of Israel. I just am not totally sure exactly how it all maps out, okay? And so, and when I'm one of those guys, maybe I'm just a little bit jaded because I, I grew up in the 80s and early 90s. And so, you know, um, they told me that, you know, Y2K is coming and blah, blah, blah. And I remember when President Clinton got elected and a lot of people in the Christian community th- thought, at least in my particular circle of Christian community, thought, you know, this is the end of the world. It's coming because Bill Clinton got elected. And and I don't know if they were just freaked out that there was a Democrat in the White House for the first time in 12 years. And so there was a lot of people, that, at least that I knew at our church, that were kind of running around thinking that this is, you know, there was somehow this was prophesied in Revelation and maybe he's the Antichrist. And, and which always kind of cracks me up because a lot of people that we think are the quote unquote Antichrist, I look at them and go, yeah, but they're just not smart enough to be the Antichrist. You know, like I think that Antichrist is going to be kind of a sharper guy than this guy. That's just me. I'm just being real with you. And I, you know, you might get really mad about me saying this, but I'm just getting it, just being straight. Anyway. So I got to be like, I'm not into the blood moon thing. I mean, because I just, the problem is you research it and you realize it happened 400 years ago and then it happened 400 years before that. And, oh, but you don't understand this time is different. Okay, maybe it is. But I just, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to buy that necessarily. So I don't, I get nervous when people make connections that are too um, specific because then things don't happen. And then I worry about our faith. You know, like if you're banking, if you're banking your Christian faith and hope on a particular 
um, and on a particular prophecy coming true in the way you think it's going to come true and then it doesn't come true and you get really bummed out, I think you're putting your faith in the wrong thing. I mean, can I, can I just be honest and say that? So if you're saying, I really think that, that uh, God's plan for Israel is going to happen this way at this time in this fashion and then the whole world kind of changes. Like I remember a time when everybody was saying, well, you know, the European Union is going to come together and all the nations are going to come together in Europe and then they're going to set up the thing in Rome and it's going to be, you know, and, and, and this, this is going to be the sign of the end times and they're going to a single currency and you're like, wow. And, and, and yeah, there's, there's the idea that we have to always be watching and waiting. We believe that Jesus is going to come back. And then what happened? Europe is in a complete economic crisis and the whole idea of this European Union is beginning to start to show its cracks at the seams. And there's, there's an increase in nationalism um, among the various countries. And there's uh, a lot of kind of stuff going on between Greece and, and, um, and Germany. And, and people are watching how that's going to play out if, if Greece bails Germany or if uh, Germany bails Greece out. Um, then that's going to be a trigger to other European nations that, well, maybe they'll do the same for us, and, but Greece doesn't really want to do that. And there's just a lot, of, a lot of tension right now that is taking place in Europe, and you're actually seeing potentially a lot of people are calling for the breakup of the European Union. Now, does that mean if that happens that somehow we can't trust Bible prophecy or that God doesn't reveal what's going to happen in the future? No, it just means that we have to, we have to put our hope in the gospel first, okay? And then we, we have to hold loosely what we think is going to happen in the future. And my concern has always been when people get so wrapped up in the fact that we know it's going to happen now in our generation, that, that that becomes the overarching, that becomes like the urgency factor. Like this is urgent. It's going to happen in the next year or five years or 10 years or whatever. Then that becomes the thing you're consumed by as opposed to saying, look, there's a great possibility that Jesus could come back and all of these things that we that we see in Revelation could, could take place um, and that are you know, prophecies in Daniel and whatnot, that we could see some of these things playing out. But there's a great possibility that it won't. So what are you going to do if it doesn't? You know what I mean? And so if we just, if we have the hunker down mentality, or we're always reading the latest blog or, you know, I remember I had a seminary professor who, who really kind of checked a lot of us on this because he was he was also serving in a in a very large church actually in um, in the Midwest very large church, and he said that there were, this was back in two thousand six I think when Israel um, was involved in, in a um, in a war against Hamas, and how people were coming up and saying oh isn't this exciting isn't this exciting you know, and he says hang on a second, there are bombs that are falling on children and women and innocent people there are businesses that are getting destroyed there are lives that are being shattered. What's exciting about that? You know what I mean? And so I think we got to be careful that what we see on the TV screen as kind of like, you know, we switch back and forth between that and some kind of movie or some kind of novel, and it's just entertainment value for us. And it kind of like, okay, this this could be the trigger of the end. And we get excited because we're safe. These are real lives that we're talking about. And so we have to kind of check ourselves a little bit and realize that there are there are real human beings on both sides. And, and what we need to do more than anything else is pray for peace and pray that somehow these forces of evil, and there is great evil in the world, especially in the Middle East, that these forces of evil are, are conquered, are, uh, are put aside. And yes, I want Jesus to come back, but I do not, I do not hope for 
uh, more loss of life so that somehow, you know, I can be, uh, I don't know how I say it. I shouldn't say entertain. That's a bad word, but so that I, so that I can be like uh, gratified in my understanding of biblical prophecy. So that's just a, you can like take that and, and, you know, kind of chew on that a little bit. But I do, I do know this. Let me say this. All, all that to be, to all that being said, I do know this. It is very odd, I guess I would say, if you were just looking at this from an outside looking in perspective, that a tiny strip of land, a tiny strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea, the size of what, New Jersey, always seems to find itself at the center of the world. Isn't that odd? That nations far larger, with far greater geography and, and um, maybe larger population, just don't even show up on the radar screen. But for some reason, everyone in the world seems to have an opinion about this tiny little nation. Here is a nation that is one of the newest official nations on the planet, not even a hundred years old yet. And yet it is surrounded by people who would love to see it pushed into the Mediterranean Sea, wiped off the map. In fact, there are nations around it that don't even acknowledge its existence. Here is a nation that as it was being gathered together in the early 1900s, as Jews begin to to emigrate from their um, places in Europe and whatnot, and and the emerging Soviet Union to, to resettle, in what is now Israel, that that even out of that, as, as um, Ben Gurion was was leading the charge and, and and getting everybody to come back and forming this new nation, that all along the way, then you have the Holocaust in the 1930s and 40s, where six million Jews were exterminated, and all, out of all, that crucible of of intense suffering, then three years later, after World War II ends, it becomes its own nation. Out of, this, after, out of this massive effort to destroy it, that you have to step back and look and go, that is remarkable. Where else has that been repeated? Then later on, you have the Six-Day War. And, and, and it's after several other conflicts, but then you have the Six-Day War, which again is phenomenal in and of itself, that Israel took on all of these nations with, that had superior power in many ways. And they were able to survive. They were able to militarily defeat them. And then you should step back and say, man, God has got his hand on this nation. And it's, it's just like, even if you didn't even acknowledge that Israel played any biblical role in terms of prophecy, but just step back and go, God is protecting this little nation. Now, let me give you another perspective as well, because many of you don't know this. A lot of people just say, well, I, I, I love Israel because of the prophetic, its prophetic place in Scripture. And I, and I think that's wonderful. We also have to be careful, though, that we don't just, just love it for only that reason. We have, to, we have to appreciate Israel and its people for what they've done and what they've been able to accomplish. There is a book that I read several years ago called Startup Nation. And it's written by these two guys. One, his name is Dan Sr. And the other guy's name is Saul Singer. And, and these two guys talked about the rapid rise of Israel and what it has given the world economically and culturally. And it's fascinating. 
And so if we're going to have a real appreciation for Israel, and it's not just merely some of the historical amazing things that have happened, and of course it's place in biblical prophecy and obviously trying to figure out exactly how that plays out, but even how Israel has blessed the world up till now is staggering because they have a society and a culture that wherever it lands, it flourishes. And then you put a lot of them together in a place where they can, where they don't have these inhibitors of, of, of trying to be exterminated by others you see and some amazing things happening. For example, did you know, this is a few years old, so this was this book was published in 2009. So there's some of the figures here are, are a little bit dated at this point. But did you know that, and this is one of the things they talk about, that in terms of their economic power and their entrepreneurial power, that on the NASDAQ, for example, that the Israel has more companies listed on the NASDAQ than any other country in the world. I'm quoting from, um, from their book here, including India, China, Korea, Singapore, and Ireland. You can see all of these, even more than, than, um, than Canada. So here's this incredibly powerful entrepreneurial force that's generated all of these new, relatively new companies, especially in the tech sector, obviously. And this little tiny sliver of land that has dominated the NASDAQ. Probably one of the most interesting stories, just a little anecdotal story, happened um, in the early, well, kind of the early 2000s, 2004, 2005, when the the, uh, Intel company was having a problem. Because as, as you know, as laptop speeds began to get faster and faster and faster, there, there came a limiting factor that they had because they could only, they, the chips would get very hot and they could only go so fast. And they were worried about, you know, these things literally not being able to keep up with the, the processing speeds that were needed to be able to keep these things getting better and better. And as you know, you have a laptop for like six months and then it's old. You know, I've had my last Mac I had was like four years old and people thought, man, what are you doing? You know, and it was like almost embarrassing. Like I had a rotary telephone or something like that because these things increase so fast. And they, but they were really facing a, a kind of a plateau. So because they could not figure out a way to, to, um, to cross over this technological barrier, several people from several guys from Haifa in Israel began to work on a, a, a different way of process of developing these processors. And in fact, what they came up with was a kind of a different way in the same way a car changes gears. You know, you can only have, it's like running, trying to run a car in first gear. You can never get to 60 miles an hour in first gear, right? So they figured out a way to kind of amp up the, the speed without amping up the RPM, so to speak, and using less power. And for, for years, several years, the, the people in Silicon Valley, the head, the head guys at Intel were like, no, no, we don't want to talk to you. We don't want to talk to you. And in fact, one of the things that they said was that they, these guys, they said uh, the Israelis were making the 20-hour trip between Tel Aviv and California so frequently that they were there almost all the time, pitching, pitching, pitching. You got it. You got to see this. You got to see this. Well, the result finally, when they were able to convince an American company, Intel, in Silicon Valley, that they were right, the result was none other than the dual-core processor, which which completely revolutionized the the processing speed of computer chips. In fact, one guy, um, an analyst for American Technology Research, his name is Doug Friedman, the way he said it was, the Israeli team, quote, saved the company. In other words, as soon as they made this announcement about these chips, the stock price of Intel shot up rapidly. It had been going down. And these guys basically single-handedly from Haifa and Israel saved Intel. But it goes further even than that. 
they talked about the other peripheral enhancements that were made because of the of the tenacity and the persistence and the belief in a future that Israelis have. And so in a belief that they can make their future better. And one of the things that they said was one of the peripheral um, improvements was saving in electricity. So this guy here, listen to this. John Skinner and in, in, Intel's Ecnotech eco-technology executive, I guess you got to have an eco-technology executive if you have a company like Intel, calculated the amount of power that Intel's chips would have used if the company had kept developing them in the same way rather than making the, quote, right turn towards the Israeli team's lower power design. Now, this is what he says. This is a little technical, but he basically he says this. The, the, uh, a saving of 20 terawatt hours of electricity over a two and a half year period. That's the amount of power it would take to run over 22,100,000 light watt light bulbs for an entire year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Skinner noted, quote, we calculated about a $2 billion savings in electricity costs. It's equivalent to a small number of coal-fired power plants or taking a few million cars off the road. We are very proud that we are, that we are dramatically reducing the carbon dioxide footprint of our own company. That was a totally unintended consequence. Why? Because of the entrepreneurial power of this little tiny nation called Israel. Did you know that when you type in you know, you type in something like you're thinking, you know, you're going to type in Google and you're like, you know, I wonder what a, I wonder what a, um, uh, I don't know, think of anything. I wonder what a, what a bird in, in uh, South America looks like. And so you type in bird of, and you're typing in S O and all of a sudden it says bird of South America. And you think the thing's reading your mind, kind of the auto fill and everybody, we, you know, this is like something, how can you ever live without this? Right. Before it would seem like how inefficient. Did you know that? whole function of being able to to have this thing kind of autofill what you think what it thinks you're searching for that was developed by Israelis as well. In fact, to really kind of sum this up well, in uh, this this uh, one individual John Medved, the inventor, uh, he was he was kind of an entrepreneur and really a a a serious um, I guess uh, well, he he's very much someone who's promoting Israel. He says this he says, and it says this about him. In his presentations, he says only half jokingly that if Israel followed the lead of, uh, quote, Intel inside, Intel's marketing campaign to highlight the ubiquity of its chips, with, if, he did, if they did this instead of Intel inside, if Israel said Israel inside stickers, they would show up on almost everything people around the world touch. And he ticks off a litany of examples from computers to cell phones to medical devices and miracle drugs, internet-based social networks, cutting-edge sources of clean energy, to the food we eat, to the registers in the supermarket in which we shop. And the point is this. The world has been transformed by Israel. It has been elevated by Israel. Israel has blessed the world with billions and billions of dollars of wealth and and inspiration and invention. It has created jobs. It is the place that, that many Arabs go, by the way, when they need medical treatment. Well, let me ask you a question. Where would you rather get treated? In an Israeli hospital or an Egyptian hospital? Or, you know, a Syrian hospital? I'm probably going with the Israeli hospital, to be honest with you, as most of people would rather do themselves. So we have to understand that there is an in, there this little country has made an unbelievably massive difference in the world, which is why this this uh, speech by Benjamin Netanyahu 
is so incredibly important. By the way, that is um, to also say that we have to be people who are understanding that with Israel, we also, because again, looking at this thing from a perspective of the gospel, that we, we can't just simply be consumed by Israel as well when we look at the Middle East. We also have to look at the incredible um, efforts made by our Arab Christian friends. I've spent some time in Jordan. I spent some time in Egypt. I've been to some very heavily persecuted areas in Egypt and hung out with Christians who are saying, you know what, I am ready to lay down my life for the gospel. In fact, in fact, several of the of the Christians that were beheaded on the beach by um, by these uh, by ISIS several weeks ago were actually from some of these highly persecuted areas in Egypt and Elminia and places like that. And they are ready to lay down their life because they believe that God has a plan for Egypt as well. And you see it in Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel chapter 19. They believe very much that they want, they, want, they want to see the gospel transform their nation. They want to see their nation become a Christian nation again. You know, we look at the, the, uh, the, the incredible writings and, and the source of so much of, of the early church fathers and what came out of Alexandria and what came out of the, the desert fathers and so much of that, 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 uh, that hub of, of Christian thought. There was a time when Christianity was, was, uh, was, the, was the, the focal point there, was in Egypt. And they would so badly want to see that return. And so as we're praying for Israel and as we're siding with Israel, we also must stand with and pray for and, and interact with our Arab neighbors, uh, their neighbors as well, our Arab Christian friends. Our church last year gave $18,000 to buy a, to a church plant in Egypt so they could buy land so they could build a building. And that was one of the most awesome things that we did over the entire year because we believe in what they're doing as well. But I'll tell you, you know, it's messy. It's, it's messy. And Christians, you got to like realize that, that the, these issues, yes, God has a plan for Israel. It's messy as well. Because uh, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of history there, and so you have to know that. Now, when we return after our break, we are going to get into the Netanyahu speech, which uh, I, I thought was uh, extremely captivating, extremely amazing. And you need to call me and talk about it. 602-368-3776. You are listening to Life 360 with Tim Jacobs, and we will be right back. Hi there, Tim Jacobs here. I want to talk to all of my listeners living in the Phoenix area. And if you're like me, you're trying to stay active. And sometimes maybe your ego is writing checks that your body can't cash. And if you find yourself getting hurt, maybe you pulled something and you don't want it to sideline you, you need to go see my friends at ChiroFit. They are a full service uh, chiropractic, massage, physical therapy, and they have locations all over the valley. They have one in Buckeye and in Peoria, Tempe. They just opened up another location in Avondale. Go to chirofitgroup.com. That's chirofitgroup.com or call them at 623-773-2000 and just tell them, say, I'm hurting and I need help. And they will get right on it and you can go down there and you can start feeling better today. So again, chirofitgroup.com and tell them that Tim Jacobs sent you. Yes, my friends, 
Keeping it real with you. Life 360 with Tim Jacobs redefining Christian radio. And wow, does it need to be redefined. Listen, you're listening to 1280KXEG. And, you know, join the effort, by the way, to do that. Go over to Life 360 with Tim Jacobs on Facebook and um, get it on the ground floor with me. It's a new show. And that's what all these guys here, they're telling me, like, Tim, just keep on plugging away, man. Keep going. And I'm, I'm watching the audience grow. It's been awesome to get in, getting feedback from people. You Make sure you go to the podcast site, timjacobslive.com. You can listen to podcasts there. Send me an email and uh, get in touch with me. I'd love to get to know you. And uh, it's just, it's been an exciting time. I love being able to come here each week and, uh, and talk with you. It is strange, though. It's strange to be in this little room all by myself, and uh, but I know that you're out there, and it's an amazing thing. Give me a call, by the way, 602-368-3776. Love to talk to you about anything. By the way, I will talk to you about anything today. Um, if you have a question about the Bible, if you have a challenge, if you have a concern, if you have a, just a thought about anything I've said or anything I even haven't said, if you just want to call me up and say, hey, let's talk about this. So it is Life 360 with Tim Jacobs. Prime Minister Benjamin Yahoo. Did I say that? I totally butchered his name. Netanyahu gave a passionate, clear, serious, and critical call to Congress today. And it stemmed from what he sees as the existential threat of Iran and their access or near access to a nuclear weapon. And, you know, I don't like to get into a whole lot of politics here because there are plenty of shows that do that really well. And my number one goal is the gospel. My number one goal is promoting the truth of Jesus Christ and applying it to every area of our lives as best as we possibly can. But doing that by taking a look at current events and just trying to be honest. So I don't look at things primarily through a political lens. I try to look at them through a biblical and gospel-centered lens. But as looking at this today, the speech got an unbelievable amount of applause, thunderous applause, emotional applause from everyone in there. The kind of applause that communicates, you know, there's like the clapping and then there's the, oh, this, and then there's like the clapping saying, we are with you. Preach it, man. Keep on going. We like this. We want this. That's the kind of applause that you hear when you listen to this speech. It's one of those things where the guy says like one sentence and then they clap for 15 minutes. So I want to focus on a few things that he said, because I really love the way that he frames certain things. And, and again, there are people out there that are going to criticize his speech, say it was politically motivated and everything else. I want to look at it from what the man actually said. I'm going to just give you a few quotes here. And he talks about the threat of nuclear weapons from Iran. This is, this is uh, I'm going to just quote from his speech here. He says, we are an ancient people. In our nearly 4,000 years of history, many have tried repeatedly to destroy the Jewish people. Tomorrow night on the Jewish holiday of Purim, we'll read the book of Esther. We'll read of a powerful Persian viceroy named Haman who plotted to destroy the Jewish people some 2,500 years ago. But a courageous Jewish woman, Queen Esther, exposed the plot and gave for the Jewish people the right to defend themselves against their enemies. The plot was foiled. Our people were saved. Let me tell you why that was awesome. That was awesome because he is putting today's events in the perspective of history. Let me tell you why when somebody like Benjamin Netanyahu quotes Esther, I will listen to him. Because unlike oftentimes what, and it's not bad what we do in churches, when we tell the story of Esther, 
we, we speak at, about it from a redemptive perspective. We speak about it from somewhat of a historical perspective from the standpoint of this is what God did with the Jews and, and this is how he preserved the, the, uh, the Israelites through a, a difficult time and God can do the same thing with you. God can raise up an Esther and, you know, and we apply it to the ladies and that sort of thing. And it's got this kind of um, overarching proverbial kind of feel to it. But for Netanyahu, the story of Esther is absolutely rooted in his history. In their history, he traces it back and he interprets it as kind of the way we would interpret World War II or World War I, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, these, these times of great conflict in our history. And what's important, so he's looking at, he has 4,000, we have 150 years, you know, in terms of the Civil War, maybe, you know, 225 years or whatever it is at this point, 230 years of history since our nation's founding, which is, you know, not bad. He's got 4,000 years of history that he draws from in terms of the establishment of his people. Meaning this, he takes today's events and puts them in the context of history. And whenever somebody does that, I'm always listening because I'm hearing a person who says, look, the reason we have to be concerned about this is because we're equi- we, we need to look backwards to see the future. Did you know that, that a, a very much of a Hebrew concept of future is, uh, or the future is kind of like a, and this is one of the things that we were taught in seminary, was kind of like a rowboat. So when you're in a rowboat, you don't always know where you're, you know, if you're sitting in a rowboat and you're rowing, you, you, you're moving forward, so to speak, but you're looking backward, right? Because you're kind of, you're, you're rowing. And so you're pulling, but you're going backward. And so as you're looking, the only way for you to really see the way forward is for you to see where you've been. And you have these data points along the way. So as you're looking back, you can see this is where we've been. Based on where we've been, we can get somewhat of an idea of where we're going. And that is why, that is why these stories like Esther and the story of David and the story of Daniel and these other, these, this is why these are written down and preserved for the Israelite and the Jewish people. And we, we believe that we as Christians are part of that as well. But these things are very, these stories are very serious because they are data points. And so now here, imagine Netanyahu and he's saying, look, I read my Bible and I realize that tomorrow night we're going to read the story of Esther to celebrate Purim. And we're going to realize that a Persian regime and somebody in a Persian regime wanted to destroy us. And as I look at the tweets from the Ayatollah and I look at what's coming out of the Iranian regime, which is, by the way, Persian. And I'm hearing, I'm just taking them at face value I'm a little bit concerned because we've been here before. Do you see what I'm saying? We've been here before. And so when it comes to evaluating the words of a man, I'm always going to want to side with the person who has a clear understanding of history or who at least can relate. And one of the big challenges is, my friends, is when we lose the ability to understand what's gone before us or we minimize it or we say, well, human nature has changed and the world has changed. But here's, yes, the world's changed, but here's what hasn't changed. What hasn't changed is the existence of evil. And what hasn't changed is the human desire 
on the part of some and on the part of many throughout history to crush one's neighbor rather than love one's neighbor. And what also hasn't changed has been the consistent desire to eradicate, exterminate, and subjugate Israel. That's just constant. So what I don't understand is how anyone can look at Netanyahu and and say that what he's saying is illegitimate or he's just um, he's he's throwing out uh, false fear when he can just look at his own history and say we've been here before Winston Churchill did the same thing in the 1930s he warned over and over and over again the British parliament you guys this Adolf Hitler i know he's i know he seems like he's you know a harmless chap but we are in for it. Why? I don't know if you know this or not, but Winston Churchill, earlier in his life, before he became prime minister, was one of the things, at least he was, was a historian. And he wrote several volumes, four volumes, the history of the English-speaking peoples. And he knew from the very beginning of the English-speaking, of the very beginning of the history of England, how it started. And so as he is able to look back and trace the ebbs and flows and the, and the hard times and the high points of, the English, of English history, he's able to look at where they are now and say, you know what, we've got some real problems. We have opportunities. We can win. We can overcome this. But we would be fools to ignore 2,000 years of history that has been marked by bloodshed and war and think that the people who have the possibility to threaten us the greatest are just going to go away. So when someone who knows history draws a conclusion of current events based on history, I'm probably going to side with that guy. I'm probably going to listen to that guy. And I'll tell you, I, I guess here's the thing. I've always believed that there are a lot of people in the world who want to ignore the reality of evil. They just don't want to believe that there is evil in the world because if you acknowledge evil for evil's sake, that it just exists because it exists. It's not anybody's fault. It just exists. It's very inconvenient because it means I can't just go out and run around on the beach and have a great life and I, I, I have to face it, but it's hard to face. So the, the next best thing is to ignore it. Because if there's a bully on the block, you got to fight him. And when you don't want to fight him, if you want to ignore him, you know what you do? You know what the next thing you do is? You get mad at the guy who points out the bully. And you say, you know what? He's not a bully. Stop talking about it. And you ignore it. And you end up taking out your anger and fear of the fact that you know there really is a bully out there. And you take it out on the guy who, who calls it out. Because the guy who calls it out is the one who won't leave you alone. The guy who calls it out is the one who says, listen, you got you to gotta stop, you know, you got you to gotta get off the internet and stop playing, you know, Game of Thrones or whatever else because we have a real battle going on here. You know what I'm saying? Am I playing Game of Thrones or watching it? I don't even know. Is it a game or is it a show? It's a show. Do you play it too? I don't know. There's some game. I don't know. Now I just totally made myself sound like an idiot. But that's because I don't do any of that stuff. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't have time. Here's the point. The next thing you'll do, if you want to ignore the bully, is you'll say, well, 
I'm, I'm going to ignore the reality of the bully. If he's mean, however, it's not because he's really a bully. It, it, I must have done something to upset him. We must have we must have really made the bully mad. So what we need to do is we're not, let's, not, let's not fight the bully. Let's try to understand the bully. Let's apologize to the bully. And let's apologize for our existence. Let's apologize for our freedom. Let's apologize for our way of life. Let's apologize for the fact that maybe we got in your car a little while ago and, and we had some good intentions and things didn't work out perfect. And, and I guess the reason that you're so mad is because of us. Because it's easier to even take it out on yourself than it is to take it out on the other guy. If you really don't want to acknowledge that he is evil for evil's sake. Because for a lot of us, it just, it's, it doesn't register. So the other day I go to Starbucks, which is a big shocker. And as I'm walking towards Starbucks, because I parked my car in the parking lot, I'm walking across to where the um, door is. And there's a young kid who kind of is dressed in a way that, um, well, let's just say I wouldn't buy investments from this guy. All right. He doesn't seem like a credible individual. And so he's dressed in a certain way and he's, he's running very rapidly across the little entrance to the coffee shop. I mean, just across, and I mean, he's running very rapidly. And, I'm, and, I, and my first thought in my mind is, that's weird. But I didn't think anything of it. Come to find out, this guy had just come from go, walking through around the drive-thru of the Starbucks and grabbing the tip jar. You know, they always have a little plastic square tip jar thing, you know, when you go through the drive-thru at Starbucks, he grabs a tip jar and he, he steals the money and he runs away. And I, and I'm like, and I'm, and I'm, and there's a couple guys sitting out there and they're kind of looking like, did, did that guy just steal the tip jar? And, and, you know, he's, he wasn't running full speed, but he was very much running. Like I am on a mission to, you know, get away with this. And it took us all like 30 seconds or so to go, what was that? What that just, that just happened really. And then you're sitting there going, who would steal the Starbucks tip jar? Now, the, the good part of the story is the employees at Starbucks, they were aware of this, that this might happen. So they actually took all the money out of it except for four quarters. So the guy got four quarters. So, you know, you get a dollar for your troubles and uh, there you go. But I was sitting, honestly, I was bummed because I thought, man, this was my moment, man. If I'd only been more aware, if I'd only been more cognizant of evil and when I saw that guy, I mean, I could have tackled him, you know? And I know I'm like my shoulder's still a little bit out, but let me tell you something, folks. Like I hit CrossFit hard for three years and I may be 160 pounds dripping wet, okay? But I think if I turned it on, I could have totally dropped this guy and at least just, you know, detained him long enough for law enforcement to be there and it would have been so cool because they, you know, I just, my wife would have been proud of me and maybe they would have given me free Starbucks for, you know, six months. And, but that whole, so that, that vanished real quick. Why? Because it was so strange to me and everybody else that somebody would actually do that because we don't expect that. And I think that's part of the problem. We sit there and go, nah, there's got to be another reason than the fact that the Iranians regime just hates Israel and wants to build a nuclear bomb to blow it up. Nah, there's got to be some other excuse. I think they just want cheaper electricity, really. Because even if they tweet out, we hate Israel and you guys are horrible and we hate America and death to this and death to that and death to everybody and I wish I was dead and whatever. Even though they do that, yeah, but it's just because they're, you know, they just need some medication. They just need to like go to Vegas a little bit and see some shows. There's got to be some explanation for this. And that's what you do when you don't want to do the hard work of acknowledging the existence of evil. It screws up your head and it messes with your judgment. You, know, you miss opportunities to tackle a guy that stole the tip jar from Starbucks. 
So, so here's not Netanyahu saying, 4,000 years ago, these guys tried to destroy us. And, he's, and, and once again, they're trying again. So he goes on and says this. I don't have sound bites, so I'm just going to read it to you. He says, quote, But I can guarantee you this. The days when the Jewish people remain passive in the face of genocidal enemies, those days are over. Of course, thunderous applause follows. We are no longer scattered among the nations, powerless to defend ourselves. We restored our sovereignty in our ancient home, and the soldiers who defend our home have boundless courage. You know, that, is, that just probably sounded like, that, that probably just was like water to a dry land. Not only to, to, uh, for Israeli soldiers to hear that, but I think for a lot of Americans, a lot, maybe even some American soldiers heard that and went, man, that's, man, I, I would just love to hear those words. You know what I mean? I don't know. I just feel like we're in a weird time. But for the first time in a hundred generations, we, the Jewish people, can defend ourselves. Of course, then again, massive, emotional, passionate applause. And then he says this, and this is the kicker. This is why, this is why as the prime minister of Israel, I can promise you one more thing. Even if Israel has to stand alone, Israel will stand. What does that mean, my friends? That is telegraphing a message to Iran, to ISIS, to any other nation that seeks the destruction of Israel, and to the United States in terms of our partnership with them, which he affirms at the very beginning of the speech is strong and did a very, very gracious job in affirming that. But that's a message saying we will do what we have to do to defend ourselves. And you know, you guys, whatever anybody says, you can't deny the truth of what happened today. That a man came from a tiny sliver of a country the size of New Jersey, whose nation has blessed the world so disproportionately, it's beyond the ability to factor. So disproportionately. And he came to the United States of America and he told the truth. He told the truth. And he didn't care about who got offended because it's better I've always believed that if you can just get the truth out there, we can, we can handle it. If you don't have truth, you don't have anything. And just to say, you know what? We have a real problem here. And the politics aside, you guys, and I don't, I don't, I'm not an expert on Israel. I'm not an expert on, on the political ramifications of this. This is not the show for this. But I am someone who loves to see a man stand up and speak his heart without reservation. And you know what I think in the hall, in that, in, that, in that room where Congress was gathered except for the few who boycotted? I think people saw that and went, man, I love that. I love that. Here is a man who has the courage to stand and say, if I stand alone, if we stand alone, then so be it. 
but this is the direction that I'm headed and we're headed. I just came over here just to, just to share my heart with you about where we're at and why we're thinking the way we're thinking and what we might do if we have to. My friends, those type of people in the world are so incredibly rare. And it doesn't matter what, at this, but right now I'm not talking about what country he's from. But just to hear a man speak with conviction who is good. Right now we're hearing so many people speak with conviction who are evil. Who want the destruction of our nation. And they are passionate and they are willing to give give their lives. My friends, if Israel prospers, the world prospers. And it's so awesome to hear a man come across the ocean. And then some. To come to the most powerful place on the planet and stand for something with conviction. And you know what? Even, even, even if things aren't even, even if history says in five years or 10 years or 15 years that there was really nothing to worry about. Here's a man who is protecting his country. Here is a man who says, I I am not going to make an excuse for my existence. I'm not going to apologize for my existence. Reminds me, actually, one more quote I'll give you out of this book. The first chapter is on persistence, talking about the Israeli culture. Listen to this. This is from a guy named Mike Lay, who uh, in his book, 2000 Years, he writes this. Four guys are standing on a street corner. An American, a Russian, a Chinese man, and an Israeli. A reporter comes up to the group and says to them, Excuse me, what's your opinion on the meat shortage? The American says, What's a shortage? The Russian says, What's meat? The Chinese man says, What's an opinion? The Israeli says, What's excuse me? (laughs) Right? What's excuse me? Why would you say excuse me? If you have a question to ask, just ask it. You have something to say, say it. You want to do something, do it. And that's a, that's a culture that has borne massive economic prosperity. A culture that has pushed its way, rightfully so, into the boardrooms of American companies and said, let us help you, as I demonstrated earlier. That's a culture that says, we do not have time for apologies. We do not have time to to rehash history and try to figure out what we could have done better. We are in a fight for our existence and our survival, and we're not going to apologize for the fact that we live, that we exist, that we want to live in peace and safety, and that we want to prosper in what we do. I love that. And no matter how you feel about the political motivations, no matter how you feel about the prophetic or historical ramifications of this speech or whatever else the case may be. You've got to respect a man who wants to do good, who wants to protect his people, who wants to look at the end of his life someday and say, you know what I did? I I went to the highest place of American, of, of world power on behalf of my people and said, listen, I've got a problem. And history shows if I've got a problem, you've got a problem. Because history shows there were 6 million Jews killed in the Holocaust, but there were millions upon millions of non-Jews also killed 
in the Holocaust. Do not think for a moment that what affects us will not affect you. I respect that. And I wish, I wish that I heard this kind of thing more. I wish we had men stand up with no apologies and women who stood up with no apologies who can say, as he also said in his speech, with such clarity, when it comes to Iran and ISIS, because we know they are at odds with each other, right? And so in some ways, it's like, well, hey, Iran doesn't like ISIS either. Maybe we can hang out. And he says this so clearly. When it comes to Iran and ISIS, the enemy of your enemy is your enemy. That's hard to take, isn't it? Now, I say all this because um, this was a, a, a very historic event, and um, it'll be very interesting to see. What we need to do, if you're a Christian, you need to continue to pray that God's will is done around the earth. And when God's will is done, people will prosper and people will move forward and lives will be spared and saved. And we need to be able to constantly gravitate towards those who are speaking truth. Remember, go to timjacobslive.com if you want to hear any previous show. Remember to follow me on Facebook at Life360 with Tim Jacobs. And I would love to be able to get in touch with you. Remember to stop by Compass Church in the Wild West Valley anytime, compasschurchaz.com. And I will see you next Tuesday for yet another shot in the arm, another thigh master for your soul, another wad with God. I'm Tim Jacobs, and I will see you next week.